Welcome back to the 45th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and it's great to be back with you as we continue our focus on the psychological dimension. Last week, we talked about the first two components, or the first movements, we would call them, of turning distress into joy, and those were forgiveness and channeling. But this week, we're going to focus on the other three, the final three components of being able to find joy even in these distressful, difficult situations. So we start with the third, volunteering. And it begins with an incredibly sad story, but incredibly inspirational story of the 11-year-old Kate Brugenschmidt. So Kate had just finished her softball game that morning, and she'd gone over to a friend's house. And a few hours later, her mom, Ashley, got a call that no parent ever wants to receive, and a call that changed their life forever. During the course of her time at the friend's house, Kate had written an ATV, had fallen off, and the ATV had rolled over on top of her, and she would not make it um, and pass away that day. And in this incredibly horrific, horrific, sad moment, instantly the Bergenschmitz were left with, what do we do in going forward? Um, With one other daughter, and just their life completely crashed underneath all that occurred. And as often happens, you know, they were given this choice, this really difficult choice. Do we just continue to kind of wallow understandably in this, you know, misery and this just deep, deep sadness? Or do we do something about that? And so this is where the inspirational part began. And this is, for those of you who know the Bruggenschmitz, you've come to know that through the foundation Play for Kate, they have done a phenomenal number of things in the sense of volunteering and helping others through their horrific situation. And so Play for Kate, the foundation, has done so many things, including like build softball fields throughout this area. Ashley herself has lobbied with state and even national um, legislation. And has over time, a law was enacted in which all 17-year-olds and under had to wear a helmet in the state of Indiana, which has undoubtedly saved many lives. Um, they've been involved in all sorts of ATV safety initiatives, including um, having a robot built to teach safety in general. And so as we start off, we talked about today this idea of turning distress into joy and this, this third component of volunteering. You know, in many ways, we think about the, what happened here with the Bergenschmitz and what happened here um, with this situation is that they actually channeled, as we talked last week, they channeled their, their sorrow and their pain into helping others. And there's a quote by Ashley that really describes this in such great detail and and says it in a way that nobody could ever imagine. She said, quote, You have to make your heart bigger than the hole that left after the tragedy. You have to make decisions out of love. You can't look at life and think I have nothing left to give because of our tragedy. How we deal with death is as least important as how we deal with life. What we do on earth matters. It sets our course for eternity empower people, offer hope, try to bring meaning to the pain. That is how I continue to survive. So as an incredible model of what it means to give to others, to help to others, especially during their own tragedy, what we see and we find is that the benefits of doing what they've done and so many other people who volunteered and, you know, even through the corporal and spiritual works of mercy is that so many good psychological outcomes come to the giver or the helper. And that includes, you know, increased psychological adjustment, decreased anxiety, decreased depressive symptoms, less risk-taking behaviors, uh, more pro-social connections. And the list goes on and on 
again, about these benefits that come with helping others. There's a really interesting thing to understand about the mechanisms behind this. And one of the mechanisms is that it's the mechanism of eudaimonic well-being versus hedonic well-being. So hedonic well-being is when we do something that makes us feel good, like eating an ice cream cone. And and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God gives us many things to help us feel good in our lives. But hedonic well-being only takes us so far. And what volunteering really does is it creates a sense of greater eudaimonic well-being, eudaimonic with an E-U at the beginning. And that is the sense of feeling good about ourselves, right? Not just feeling good in the moment, but feeling good about ourselves and about who we're becoming. And we do this through volunteering, through helping others, through these works of mercy, through the idea of mattering. Mattering was actually a concept way back in the early 80s that they kind of discovered, um, really mediated this, this relationship. And mattering is kind of like what it sounds, is that you recognize that I truly matter to another, right? Again, we go all the way back even to the social dimension with the golden rule and all this, all this beautifully weaves together according to living a whole Christian life. But when you sense that you matter to another human being, what you find is an increased sense of peace and joy in your own life. And again, tying back into that social dimension, what we find is that the precursor often to you know, giving to others, to volunteering, to being altruistic, not surprisingly, is empathy. So here we are again, kind of full circle in everything affecting everything. The fourth movement or component of finding joy in the midst of distress and stressful lives is gratitude. And I love this quote by Robert Emmons um, in his book, and it says, true gratefulness rejoices in the other. Its ultimate goal is to reflect back the goodness that one received by creatively seeking opportunities for giving. The motivation for doing so resides in the grateful appreciation that one has lived by the grace of others. In this sense, the spirituality of gratitude is opposed to a self-serving belief that one deserves or is entitled to the blessings that he or she enjoys, end quote. It's a beautiful way of kind of recognizing that we live by the grace of others and, of course, the grace of our God, that everything that we really have, and this is not a trite statement, but really, truly everything good in our lives has come Even through our effort, it has to come through someone or has to come through our creator. And the wonderful thing about gratitude that we find from a psychological sense is that when you are grateful in the moment, it's literally incompatible with anxiety and self-absorption. So when you're expressing and you're really, really harnessing the sense of gratitude, you cannot feel anxious or you can't feel self-absorbed in that moment, even if it may come later on. And so as we talk more about this idea, let's think about all those times we talk about the prayers of thankfulness just in general and how that kind of plays out here. But we also need to consider more just what is gratitude and what is not gratitude. So gratitude is not false positivity or the denial of negative emotions. Gratitude is not condoning atrocities or maltreatment by others, even if an outcome might be good. False gratitude can definitely lead to negative outcomes that span generations if we're not careful. And so being thankful also does not mean being tragically idealistic or blind to obvious realities. True gratitude does not encourage settling or an erosion of high standards, even if struggles highlight meaningful moments and progress that remain hidden to untrained eyes. 
So it's a key to know what gratitude is not as we talk about this here. When you really have authentic gratitude, researchers indicate that gratitude has a number of significant long-lasting positive effects on an individual. And in addition to physiological improvements like decreased blood pressure and improved immune functioning, gratitude has been consistently shown to improve social-emotional outcomes in the area of anxiety, depression, and substance use. As a specific therapeutic technique, gratitude can be effective for multiple issues. So it's interesting. Here was a particular study that actually looked at a gratitude intervention compared to other four positive-based strategies to determine um, which one would increase the level of happiness and reduce depressive symptoms. And so what they were asked, participants were just asked to simply write and deliver a letter to someone that they had never properly thanked. I love this study. This is such a cool thing. And the results from this, after they did that, you know, that simple act of showing gratitude and literally delivering the letter, the results indicate that in comparison to other experimental strategies, like, for example, focusing on using or identifying their own strengths or even recognizing good things in life, the gratitude visit group, as we're calling it here, showed far and away the biggest increase in happiness and the decrease in depressive symptoms on the immediate post-test as far as the research itself. And so here, once again, evidence suggests that repeated acts of gratitude are most likely to be associated with positive benefits. But we really have to go forward and make sure that it's authentic and that it's truly occurring in a thankful way. So how do we make gratitude work as well as possible? And I think this is really key the way God has kind of apparently ordained this in our lives is that just being thankful alone isn't necessarily always enough or has the best psychological benefits. Well, there's really four keys. If you're going to harness this beautiful gift of thankfulness, the first is it's better to be more specific, very more detailed in your gratitude to say, thanks God for a great day. I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but to say, Hey, thanks God for that really wonderful interaction I had with my coworker today after what's been a difficult situation for some time, or thanks God for, you know what, getting me through a, a light, a traffic light that I never get through, you know, in one light before. And so there's a sense of the more details and specifics we provide in thanking God or others, the more likely it's going to be beneficial. We also find that the more you really harness things that are kind of unexpected, or new in your life that you may not predict, the more we give thanks for those things, the more it seems that gratitude increasingly has those positive psychological effects. The third strategy around gratitude and using it most effectively is that we need to regularly consider what would have life been like if I didn't have whatever positive events had occurred? Like, what if I had never met my wife? How could that have like changed my life in so many ways and left me out of so many things that have brought me joy and meaning, even in the midst of difficulties, right? What if I had never had this chance encounter with another individual that led to this particular job or, or a new kind of interest or whatever it is, right? It's really important to look at your life, not necessarily thinking about what I don't have, but rather, wow, what if all of these good things hadn't occurred that have brought me to such rich places? And finally, like everything else, what we do regularly and consistently is likely most effective. So even a few minutes of just gratitude journaling, even let's say setting like three things at the end of the day that you really want to journal around that you're thankful for, 
doing that over time, it really almost like ingrains itself in our neurons, I think, right? It almost like becomes the fabric of who we are. We start to identify ourselves as grateful people, not even just being grateful for things, but I am a grateful person. And in being a grateful person and doing that habitually over and over, it seems that positive effects really come more and more. And number five, and the final movement is transcendence. Quote, it was not the dawn flooding the bay with splendor which woke Frederick. Rather, it was a gradual awareness of flaming words all around him, living things that carried him down wide rivers and over mountains and across spreading plains. Then it was people who were with him, black men, very tall and big and strong. They turned up rich earth as black as their broad backs. They hunted in forests. Some of them were in cities, whole cities of black folks. For they were free. They went wherever they wished. They worked as they planned. They even flew like birds high in the sky. He was up there with them, looking down on earth, which seemed so small. He stretched his wings. He was strong. He could fly. He could fly in a flock of people. That quote was an excerpt from the book, There Was Once a Slave by Shirley Graham. And it tells a very specific experience of transcendence from the life of Frederick Douglass. And so Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, later known as Frederick Douglass, was born a slave around the year 1818. After being separated from his mother as an infant and later from his grandmother, he was sent to live in a plantation nearby only to be eventually placed into servitude with the Auld family in Baltimore. Despite a Maryland law prohibiting slaves from being taught to read, Frederick acquired early literacy skills from a member of the master's family. But after acquiring further abilities and gaining recognition as a teacher himself, he was sent to a local farmer who had the reputation of being a slave breaker. Frederick barely survived one particular beating that left him bleeding and near death in the woods. With the aid of two mysterious individuals, Frederick found himself in a moment of transcendence, as I just described, eventually on his way to freedom. His life would later become one of great meaning as a social reformer, orator, writer, and the leader of the movement to abolish slavery for good. For all who suffer, like Mr. Douglas, right, meaning must first come through survival. But at some point, a question emerges about whether distress and misery mean more than the pain one feels. And an inquiry of transcendence appears at this point. We've all been there, right? Is there more than what is around me? Is there more than what I feel that moment? And in a study of those affected by severe childhood trauma, surviving is defined as, quote, to continue to exist or simply stay alive. But for those who survive, they are able to find a way through each day that comes. But past trauma, right, still exerts their, you know, that significant control of their life. But with those who are able to transcend, like Mr. Douglas, there's a sense of rising above the ordinary physical and psychological state. Although traumatic experiences themselves may remain as definitive or direct circumstances in a person's life, transcendence provides an escape to a more meaningful and often joyful existence. So here's the thing. You know, when we think about transcendence, we are striving towards something that is much greater than ourselves, right? We're striving oftentimes towards making meaning of suffering, whether it's meaning through reasoning and understanding or through action or spirituality. And the reality is that we're really striving to go beyond 
the moments, the circumstances that often serve to limit us. And I think that that's, you know, when we think about all of this, we come back to that quote by Pierre Chardin, which is that, again, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, but we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And although what happens to us in many ways characterizes and tells the story of our life, it doesn't define our life because we, in essence, have this great ability through unity with God and through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and through the grace that's afforded to us to use our free will to unite in a way that transcends, again, like Frederick Douglass, it transcends the pain, it transcends the struggles, it transcends oftentimes even the boredom or just like the monotony of our life and says to us, there is something more. And, you know, it's often argued, oh, you know, we don't know how often we go this route of transcendence. I mean, I think people kind of struggle to understand this, but if you think about your life, even throughout the week, how many times do you connect with people even when they're not there, right? How many times do you find ways to get through something um, through prayer or other ways or just, you know, just whatever mechanisms that you sometimes think there's no way I'm going to get there. And then the days and the weeks and the months pass by and you look back, and I know this again sounds like a very trite or maybe old thing to say, but you look back and I think, I cannot believe it has been 15 years, right? I think about that with our kids right now, just the fact that our our twins are 16 and driving and going to be headed to college here really soon. And it's hard to believe that that time has passed. And in many ways, it seems that life itself is transcendent. There's this great quote in Isaiah, this biblical verse that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And I think in the end of the day, when we're striving to transcend, that's what we're striving. We're striving to meet our maker, um, to meet all that he brings in a way that defies just our human limits, right? Our human capabilities. And so as we as we round off this two-part kind of series on turning distress into joy, and we come back to these five, again, I call them movements because they're really movements of the soul, forgiveness and channeling and helping others and gratitude and transcendence. The really neat thing for me about all of this is that all of those in many ways are kind of spiritual commands that God gives us to forgive others, to harness the sense of self-control and our free will to help others in their distress through spiritual and corporal works of mercy, to give thanks regularly and often, and then to seek our connection ultimately with our maker and our Jesus and the Holy Spirit. These are all spiritual commands. But you know what? Isn't it wonderful that when we harness these commands, we also find they provide for so much more psychological peace and joy. This is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole.